Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, we're joined today by Oliver Heath. He's founder of Oliver Heath Design, who many listeners know are global experts in biophilic design. Oliver Heath Design is a research-led sustainable architecture and interior design practice focused on improving health and well-being in the built environment. They specialize in creating more productive, happier, and healthier spaces to live and work in by improving the human connections to nature. And you've probably seen him on telly as well, on Channel 4 and the BBC, on Changing Rooms, Homefront and Dream Homes. Um, Oliver, I'm so thrilled to have you here. So thanks so much for joining me. That's a pleasure, Ness. Well, a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us in your own words, um, obviously you are almost like Mr. Biophilia, to be fair, <laughs> um, but can you tell us in your own words? I on about it, don't I? It's not like, yeah, I just keep going on and on about it and eventually the message sort of sinks in. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if, if you could just tell us in your own words what biophilia is. Yeah, so biophilia quite literally means a love of nature. It's a term that was popularised in the 1980s, so it's not a very, uh, not a very old idea. And essentially it explains our innate desire and attraction to be in and around nature and natural processes. In a basic level, it explains why when we take a holiday, we head to the beach, the mountains and the forest. And when we're in those spaces, we feel this incredible sense of calm and relaxation. The stress just kind of washes off us and we become quite different people. You know, we, we sleep better, we communicate better, our relationships are, are different because we have time to spend with people, we're not stressed, we don't sort of fire off angry exchanges. Um, we can think more holistically about our life and where it's going. So it's a sort of recognition of the many benefits um, that being in and around nature brings to us. So biophilic design as a result of that, essentially, are a set of design principles that have been created that allow us to bring elements of nature into the built environment. And I believe most importantly, into places where we experience a lot of stress. Um, because you know, when we're in and around nature, it has this incredible ability just to relax us, to reduce stress, and also to aid recuperation. So it's about kind of, I feel design is about how we bring elements of nature in, not for the sake of doing it in itself, as many people think, but actually about how we create more human-centered spaces in order to deliver on the intended function of that building. And it sort of seems ridiculous to say that, but it might be about how we create learning spaces where children and students can learn better, or maybe about how we create hospitals where patients get better faster, or offices where people can be more creative and work more effectively. You know, that connection to nature can unlock so many incredible benefits, and that's what we're really exploring. Obviously, you're an, you're an architect and an interior designer. Um, how did you first sort of come about incorporating biophilic design elements? I did read somewhere that when you were a kid, you used to go to the beach and like pick up like random stuff and bring it home. So you obviously you were sort of around Brighton, so you're you're working in Brighton now. So does that kind of influenced what you do now? I think. Um, <laughs> You know, when I was growing up in the 1970s, I lived in Brighton and we also lived in the countryside. So I spent a lot of my time just running wild uh, through the woods and the forests, climbing trees, getting stuck in muddy bogs and splashing around in rivers and building camps. And, you know, all of those things that we think of as kind of rural kids, um, the things that sort of disappeared now. And then uh, as I was growing up, I 
recognized from quite an early age that I wanted to study architecture from about the age of 10. Um, and then at the same time, uh, I was a windsurfing instructor. So at the same time as I was studying architecture, I was teaching windsurfing and teaching people to look after themselves, but make the most of nature and their time spent in blue spaces like in the sea. So in a way, you know, those ideas of architecture and the natural environment sort of coalesced and combined. You know, I loved architecture. I loved spending time in nature. I was always rather struck by the very hard divisions and lines that are created in, you know, the man-made built environment and how different it is to our experiences in nature. So as our, my career developed, and particularly as I went into TV, um, I felt there was an opportunity to talk about things that were really important. Um, back in the late 90s, when I started working on uh, changing rooms, I felt that there wasn't enough discussion around sustainability. And so I made it my mission to talk about how design can not just... Um, reduce their impact onto the environment, but also create healthier spaces. And over time, those conversations sort of developed away from maybe just, you know, saving energy and making homes more efficient towards more human-centered elements about how we create greater levels of happiness and well-being. And it was from that point that I really discovered biophilic design and recognized that actually many of my early ideas about the importance and value of nature in our lives could be interwoven not just into our homes, but also the, the many other buildings that are so important into our daily lives. And why do you think it's really important now? I mean, obviously, we've been going through COVID and we're coming out of lockdown. I mean, why do you think it's, I mean, I mean, do you, I mean, obviously, I know it's a bit of a silly question to ask you, but why do you yeah. think it's really important now that people should be embracing biophilic design? Yeah, I mean, it's a good and a very pertinent question. Now, before lockdown, there was a statistic that the average person spent around 90% of their lives indoors, um, which most people don't even concede to be true. But, but if you think about it, we spend very little time outdoors. Um, since lockdown, we've obviously been spending more time, not just in buildings, but in one building. You know, we don't have that rich diversity of spatial uh, uh, elements in our lives. So we don't, you know, ordinarily, we would be in our homes. We might be stepping out, commuting, being buses or stations, railways, maybe getting on a bus, maybe we grab a coffee from a cafe, we're in our offices, our workplaces, maybe we come out, go for lunch at restaurants, we're sitting in parks, we go to cinemas, restaurants, cafes, in all these buildings, and now we're in lockdown, we're in our homes. And I think it really condenses one's architectural and spatial experiences to going, wow, look at this, these four walls, what my life is contained in. You know, I'd never really thought about it, but God, I'm going out of my brain. You know, you've got cabin fever. So I think as a result of that, people are recognizing that the buildings that they surround themselves in have an enormous impact on their physical, mental, and emotional states. And that actually there are very, very simple things that actually alleviate some of that sense of cabin fever, some of that kind of spatial stress. So getting out, being... Um, on a balcony, having a view, being in a garden, walking down your street, going to a park, going to the forest, the woods, going to the beach, whatever it is, people are recognizing that getting out and spending even a little time in nature is a really valuable element in their lives. And I think particularly now because of COVID, it's really focused our recognition of how important that nature connection in our lives is as a means to manage our mental and physical well-being. 
Do you think more people are finding out and sort of understanding what biophilic design is? I mean, I've, I've seen when I first started it, I used to Google it and there'd be like two or three things come up and now it seems to be everywhere, you know. Um, do you think there's a greater, do you think there's a misunderstanding? I think there's a greater understanding because people are, like I said, recognizing the enormous impact buildings are having on our lives. It's not just our homes, it's also our offices. Uh, and then seeing that their time spent in nature is significantly different and going, well, why can't I feel that good in this space? I mean, my home's the most important place in my life. I should be feeling good in it. Maybe if I brought some of that stuff in. So I think there's a greater recognition that nature can play a valuable role. I think the housing situation in the UK is influencing that. You know, we're seeing a lot of social media posts about the benefits of plants in part. That's because more and more young people aren't able to get on the housing ladder. And I think plants and greenery are a fantastic way of adding personalization, you know, direct um, influence over space and items in it, um, a means to feel better, uh, to improve air quality. Um, so there is a recognition that they're bringing plants and greenery and elements of nature, that sunlight as well and fresh air is a you know, very easy thing to, as a means to improve spaces. But I think more specifically, when we look at biophilic design, we talk about biophilic design as being a human-centered approach to design. But when we look at the whole spectrum of those human-centered elements, then it also includes things like air quality, water quality, the food, the sensory elements that we ingest in that. Maybe it's about how we move in space. It's about many of the physical things like acoustics, thermal issues, but it's also about our mental well-being. And some describe biophilia as being an overarching umbrella that can help us to deliver better air quality, better water quality, better kind of uh, more ability to move around. But, but others sort of describe biophilia as just being focused on mental well-being. Um, and I think one of the nice things about biophilia is it does boil down to just having that very simple connection. It's quite an easy thing to do. If you think about things like improving air quality in buildings, it's much more complicated. It's either about materials or removing bits of furniture or, or having ventilation systems. But biophilic design can be as simple as, you know, just, just taking a simple little pot plant and putting it on your desk. And maybe that's where the journey starts. And once you've got one pot plant, well, like my office, uh, here, it very quickly adds up to having literally hundreds of plants. So, you know, it's an easy thing to engage with. Um, it's very satisfying. It's not expensive. And it really um, adds to the visual quality of the space, but also the, the, the sort of mental and physical well-being benefits. I saw on your website that you're actually doing a course. You're, doing a, you're going to launch a new course, is it? A kind of an online biophilic design course, is it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we are. We've been busy writing an online biophilic design course uh, about how to bring biophilic design into the home. So that we hope will be live in about October. So people can sign up for that and we can send you details of it. Uh, that's on our website at oliverheathdesign.com. Um, so we've been busy translating those ideas, many of the ideas that we've been investigating over the last four or five years in the workplace and hospitality and healthcare and education. Um, in, devising ways of bringing that into the home so that everybody can have it. And it kind of not necessarily at a particular price bracket. It's not about spending loads of money on a big green wall. It's about the very simple things that you can do as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I, I set up 
I've seen the mate, this, the publishing company that, that publishes the Journal of Biofluid Design is Argenta Wellness. And my, my background is a photographer, I'm a running media company. Um, and I, I kind of, when my parents were in hospital, I took images in because I'd heard a little bit about biophilic design. And I, I literally put a, a print in and my mother, you know, reduced the blood pressure. She'd be, you know, less delirious, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, hey, there's something in this. And then the academic in me kicked in. It was like, I've got to find out about it. Um, I mean, so for me, kind of my sort of altruistic thing, sort of, and it's still in the back of my head, is that I would love to see biophilic design in every NHS so that people who don't have money, who are in an awful environment, can actually feel better. Um, I mean, in, you've done, I mean, your, your, your design practice and yourself, you've done a, a lot of work in so many different spaces. I mean, how do you, how have you seen um, biophilic design transform healthcare, for instance? Okay. We did approach the NHS a couple of years ago, uh, talking about biophilic design and the many benefits of it. And they were like, yeah, we, we had heard about this and we, we do know about the many benefits. Um, are we going to do it? No. Nah. Are you going to be the people to do it? No. Nah. So we were like, okay, but why wouldn't you? You know, um, the statistics about the benefits are, are, are amazing. You know, uh, there was one seminal study, I don't know if you know about this, by a psychologist called Roger Ulrich back in the 1980s. And he looked at the rates of recovery of patients coming out of gallbladder surgery. And he found, and that this was over a five year period, and he found that the patients were recuperating two different types of room. One set of patients with a view onto a brick wall and one set of patients with a view onto trees and greenery. The patients with the views onto trees and greenery recuperated 8.8% faster. Uh, and also patients who recuperated in natural sunlight recuperated uh, with 22% less pain care medication. So, you know, we take those sorts of statistics, you know, that's nearly 10% faster. You can process patients more quickly, take less medication. You know, it's good for patients. It's good for the costs. You know, bringing elements of nature in is also good for the people who work in hospitals and very stressful environments for whom a single mistake can be quite literally life-threatening. So thinking about the stress levels of doctors, nurses, support staff, you know, it seems like a no-brainer to think about how we bring elements of nature in. And sadly, there are very few examples of that. Um, some of the best examples in the UK around the Maggie Centres, uh, as you probably know, um, these are um, projects at cancer care uh, support spaces uh, attached to hospitals around the UK, um, where architects are seemingly given sort of free reign to design a space. Um, where people who are undergoing cancer treatment can come in and connect with one another. And time and time again, we're seeing that the most successful uh, Maggie centers are those that embrace nature, that encourage people to not just bring nature uh, into the space, but also encourage people to get out into it. And using nature and our connection to, 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 to spaces as a means to create spaces where people can either sit quietly, to reflect, to feel like they're part of a bigger group, to look out onto nature, to feel the warmth and sunshine um, on their skin. There are so many ways that we can enhance that connection to nature, um, much more than just bringing plants in. Um, many of the Maggie centers do an enormous amount to demonstrate that and, and, and beautifully done as well. Yeah, I interviewed Dame Laura Lee um, a few weeks ago and yeah, she described just that about having like even the crunch of the floor, you know, having like gravel so that, yeah, it's rather than going to somewhere that's like reflective and scary and, and uh -huh. often people are going through chemotherapy, they're 
they're really sensitive to touch they're very sensitive so to metal handles and stuff so even changing even changing that to like wooden or different textures i think um yeah i mean we we're getting in just as a thing we're getting in to the nhs it's very slow um but it's but it's through the trustees and through legacy money so they they're getting in all through art projects you know instead of it being like a mainstream thing which is where it should be but anyway that's that's another conversation did she have a favorite maggie project um, she said, actually I did ask her that question you know and she said that's really really tough she said everyone is you know is is unique but the first one probably because that's the one that um, Maggie worked on yes so um, Maggie Jenks who is Charles Jenks wife that's it yeah 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 so architect yes. and landscape gardener yeah mm. so that was the the one that she really you know kind of was close to her heart she said so that was her answer so I thought it was quite a nice <laughs> nice really um, yeah. So, um, from your own sort of design practice, then, I mean, is there been somewhere? I mean, yeah, let's ask, let's ask you that question actually. Have you had a kind of, um, you know, favorite, have you got a favorite project that you've worked on that's really made, it's either been really uplifting for yourself or you've really seen a, a huge impact, you know, like what were the problems and, and what did you do and, and what were the results coming? Yeah, there are a few. I mean, the nice thing about human-centred design is that it really is about bringing people into architecture. And all too often we see beautiful images of architecture with no humans in. And you're like, so who are you designing for? Um, so I've got a few and it's quite a difficult one. And it's quite a small project. But one of my favourites was a project for the Garden School in Hackney. And essentially, um, we, we found this project. Um, we were asked to come in was basically um, the garden school is a school for autistic children. Um, what they found was that the children playing in the playground just got overwhelmed with the noise and the activity, the hustle and bustle, and many just found it a very stressful experience. The staff at the school identified that there was a, a little room next to the playground, just a sort of wedge-shaped room. It was about five or six meters long by about two or three meters wide. And what they wanted to do was to create a space where the children could come in to see the playground, but not get totally immersed in the boisterous activity, uh, to feel that there was somewhere for them to be safe, uh, to recuperate, but also to engage them with nature. So we went into the school and we created some very, very simple features. So essentially we put a window seat next to the window so that they could maximize exposure to natural light. They could get a sense of prospect over the playground, but with the safety of having the glass in between them. So they were a little bit disconnected from it. And then we created these little hexagonal niches that the children could climb into. And we actually covered them in carpet. So not only did they look like inviting spaces when they sat in them, sensorially they were quite different because they sounded different. So they were very textual. Uh, and then we also created these sort of cause and effect interactive features that when the children pressed these pads that were covered in natural surfaces like pebbles or grass or imprints of leaves. They uh, felt the surface of this texture. Uh, they also, um, when they imprinted it, when they touched it, um, a noise came out of a speaker. So the noise of wind or water or leaves, um, but also a light change. So there was this real kind of cause and effect. And it was a really wonderful project because when the children came in for the first time, they treated the room as almost as if they'd been there before. They were immediately into the niches and just relaxing. They were at the window seats, just gazing out at the activity in the playground. They were all over these little interactive features. 
And what was really amazing was the, child, the, the, the staff were there watching them going, the children are interacting with each other. You know, and these are, with the level of autism, these children, they were very sort of closed in and didn't interact, but they were literally peering out these little niches and looking at each other and um, playing with each other around these interactive features. And it was just like so wonderful to see the children explore the space, not just visually, but also, you know, see the, the, the level of relaxation or that sense of prospect and safety, their engagement with the natural features. And it was just, you know, just brought a smile to my face. And the nice thing about that project was this was a biophilic space that used absolutely zero plants, you know, because of the level of autism, um, they, they tended to shred plants, they pulled them apart. So no plants, it was just about the design of the space, the prospect, the refuge, then the natural materials and the colors, the textures, the interactive features. Um, and for me, that was really interesting because it kind of refuted that idea that biophilic design is all about plants and greenery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, when you, um, just as a kind of design thing, when, you're, when you get a new project in yourself, um, do you, I mean, what's, what's the kind of process? I mean, do you kind of, do you go in and sort of kind of, obviously it's like an empty shell or it might be needing like complete renovation or something. I mean, what's, what's the sort of process? I mean, do you kind of see like the final object? Do you see what the solution, you know, what the problems are and then try and sort of put the solutions in or is it kind of an organic thing or is it a bit of a, bit of a everything? Um, Can you give us an example maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so I come from a sort of a psychotherapy background and my family are kind of psychotherapists. So we're always being told, or I am, that, you know, we've got to be a good set of eyes and ears before we're a mouth. So I think just sitting back and asking questions, um, observing, listening, seeing what the problems really are. Very often a client will come to me and say, ah, this space isn't quite working. I don't quite know why, but I want you to refurbish it. And you're like, you know, this is what I want. And, and here's the building blocks of what I need. And then we'll, we'll go in and go, well, you know, first of all, let's ask some you know, some good questions. And if it's a workspace, then we would ideally undertake a, a you know, a pre-occupancy evaluation. We'll send out studies for lots of people to, to get, you know, the wider opinion about what the issues are. How are people feeling? Are they working? Are they, do they feel engaged and valued? The wider questions are, you know, do they feel stressed when they go home? Do they sleep well? Trying to get a really good understanding of how people use the space and whether it's delivering on the function and how it makes them feel. Um, and, you know, building up a really good brief is absolutely essential. What I really don't like is going in and going, hi, I'm a designer, we're going to do this, it's going to be amazing, I already know what we're going to do. It's like, how do you know what you're going to do? You know, you know until you've got a good understanding of the people who occupy the space, um, the issues that they're suffering from, why the space isn't working, and get to the root of that, then you're never really going to understand how you can approach the design or how that space and the limitations of it might be transformed to deliver on the intended function. So we always want to know, you know, well, what do you want to do in this space? And how do you want to feel? And how can we help you do that? You know, in a workspace, typical, you know, modern office, you might have somewhere where you've got to sit and work quietly and just focus, you know, get the job done. It might be that you want to have a little one-to-one -one meeting. It might be that you want to have a, a wider, more creative meeting and a breakout space. Maybe you just all want to kind of sit down and have soup together. So you've got this kind of, this kind of range, this diversity of spaces um, that cater for all the different sort of physical, mental, emotional 
um, needs that, that the occupants experience throughout the day. And we've really got to understand that before we start to kind of subdivide it. So it is about asking the right questions and getting to the root of the issue to understand how people want to feel uh, and what activities they want to undertake. And with um, all the sort of COVID nightmare that we've gone through and obviously lockdown, loads of people are working from home um, and some workplaces are trying to entice um, and reassure their staff to come back to work. I mean, are you, I mean, are you being approached by anybody? I mean, are, are you seeing any um, re specific requests or, you know, is there a bit of advice that you would actually, maybe that's probably more appropriate really. I mean, is there, is there a bit of advice that you would give workplaces or offices, you know, to, to attract to they were going to incorporate one or two pieces of biophilic design as a kind of not as a quick fix but um what would you yeah. say um, you know i mean i'd say that we're, we're kind of human-centered designers so we, we do look at all those issues air quality water quality what we eat movement looking at the kind of thermal issues the um you know temperature humidity all that kind of stuff but you know if, if, if they come to us and go you know biophilic design, what, what can we do? Then I think um, a lot of it is about understanding what the current spaces offer. You know, people's access to natural light, um, maybe, you know, the, the opportunities that exist from that, uh, the layout of the spaces, recognizing that people when they go back to work are probably gonna be feeling stressed and anxious. How are the, those spaces gonna um, mitigate some of those stresses? So not just going, well, we're going to have a bank of desks and more desks and more creative spaces. It's, you know, we've got to have that diversity of spaces and make sure that people have somewhere where they can sit and relax and recuperate. And that might be a formal wellness room, but it might also be a more informal space where they can just sit and gaze out the window, uh, take five minutes just to um, have a, a moment of mindfulness, to, to gather their thoughts, to get back to being at their best. So... It is about the layout in part and recognizing the different requirements of the staff um, and then looking at how elements of nature can be brought in and it could be that we're, we're looking at some of those direct elements of nature you know things like plants and trees and water features uh, and natural light it might be about how we bring indirect elements of nature things like uh, natural colors materials textures and patterns and it might be just about those those sort of spaces where are the spaces that are exciting and stimulating that encourage people to come together to congregate and communicate and where are the places that help you to sit relax and recuperate and making sure we've got that that kind of good healthy diverse mix and what about home offices <laughs> home offices ah well you know I, I, what i what i do see is when i'm doing you know skype and zoom calls um, team calls is that you know lots of people haven't really configured their home office very well people are sitting um, maybe with their backs to windows maybe you know they're looking at a blank wall so imagine you know your, your eye your eye line is uh, either looking at a screen or a wall that's about 30 centimeters behind it so you don't give yourself the opportunity just to relax your, your um, visual muscles um, so I think it's about orientating desks making sure that you make the most of any views, make sure that you have a good access to natural light, um, maybe having a plant on your desk, something that you can just engage with and tend and look after, something that is outside of your work, making sure that you've got um, good air quality, you can open a window, making sure you've got good light, both natural and artificial. And there are lots and lots of little things. Um, actually, we've written a, a guide or called Creating Positive Spaces Using Biophilic Design. And in it, um, what we've done is we've, we've broken down what we call the 14 patterns of biophilic design 
into different cost strategies from no cost to low budget, medium to high budget. Um, and in it, we're basically given lots and lots of design suggestions to help people understand how they can bring elements of biophilic design into their buildings at different cost strategies. So there's lots of ideas in there and people can download that for free on our website in the resources section. Wow, that's really good. I'll definitely put a link to that on the, um, you know, it's linked to the podcast. Um, for any final question, really, kind of, if you had a magic biophilic design brush, how would the world look? And that could be anything, you know, I mean, I'm talking about like urban, urban design, interior spaces, everything. What would it, what would it look, what would the world look like if, if you could just had a magic biophilic brush that you could just sort of waft? I think, I think not necessarily what would it look like, how, what would it feel like? Exactly. And I think it would be a happier place. And I think it would be a healthier place. And I think it would be a place where people would connect with our wider natural environment to recognize that, the, you know, that our connection to nature is, you know, we, we're intrinsically connected to nature and the health and well-being of nature around us. And if we care for a plant on our desk, then we're more likely to care for our gardens and our parklands and our areas of outstanding natural beauty. And, and as we see this sort of recognition of the scale of care of, you know, if we care for that little thing, then we'll care for the wider natural environment. And, you know, I think if people were more connected, they recognize different types of trees, recognize different types of, um, of fauna and flora. Um, then they'd be, feel more connected to the wider natural environment and go, you know, I, I kind of I care for that. I care for this kind of bigger planetary thing, you know, the thing that we actually live on. So firstly, it would be about connecting people more deeply with the natural environment. And as a result, fostering greater sort of responsibility for our wider um, approach to living on the planet, making sure it's not just less bad, but also regenerative so that our life on the planet was actually give back to the planet and would be creating healthier places for our children to live on, not just less bad. So that would be kind of one thing. And then also, you know, that sense of nature would be much more deeply embedded, much more holistically integrated. You know, as you see from the image uh, of my studio, we've got about 150 plants in here. Now that's, that's one thing, that's great and lucky me, particularly because it's just me. Um, but that sense of being connected to nature would then sort of be spread out throughout, not just the streets, where my home is, but also the neighborhood. You know, how would we have, you know, connections to little pocket parks just dotted around? Maybe the streets wouldn't be dedicated to cars and parking and for us always to be under threat from being hit or from poor air quality. Maybe we would be making streets for people, for animals, for pets, and we would have close connections to elements of nature we could foster. And then we'd be, you know, being able to take cycle routes into parks. And those cycle routes would take us out of cities to forests and blue spaces or the seaside. So it's a much more holistic vision that goes really at all these different scales, starting with a pot plant on your desk, through to your streets, your neighbourhoods, your urban planning, and then, you know, fostering that greater sense of desire to be connected to nature and the amazing things that it makes you feel when you're in it. And making it really easy for people to have that kind of connection with nature, not just every day, but also through the weeks, through the months, and, and throughout the year, and to value all those kind of subtle changes that we see, but are so easily missed in our cities. 
that's really nice. I might actually end it there, but uh, Oliver, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, you know, if I get any offers to, to design a city, um, I'm up to that. So just get in touch, oliverheatdesign.com, please go ahead. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, no, no, I mean, do, do take a look at our website because we've been writing design guides over the last four years all about how you can bring biophilic design in and the enormous benefit it brings, not just to our connection to nature, but also about how it improves our sense of community as well. Um, we've got loads of design guides that are just free to download. All our thinking is there. So go to the resources page uh, and download that. Um, there's loads of stuff for free. So yeah, do take a look. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.